This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success, the podcast designed to inspire you and give you actionable information to enhance, up-level, reimagine, and reinvent your life and your livelihood. No matter where you started, where you are now, or where you've been, you too can lead an authentic, first-class life. Each week, new stories of turning points and transformation will help you define what success means to you so you can live your best life on your terms. Now here's your host, first-class life mentor and certified Profiting From Your Passions coach, Kate Fessler. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and today my guest is Debbie Carlson-Gould. Debbie spent the first 18 years of her working life at the same job. Self-limiting beliefs about her education, abilities, and worth kept her stuck in an unsatisfying situation. Driven by the desire to relocate her family and therefore increase her earnings potential, she embarked on an intensive journey of self-discovery and career development. Through that process, she defined her own motivated skill sets, came to understand what type of work for which she was most suited, and learned successfully how to bypass standard HR procedures when seeking and landing new employment within her career goals. She quickly became an expert at landing newly created problem-solving positions, serving the unique needs of the organizations that engaged her. All this led Debbie to form her own consulting firm so she could work for multiple organizations at once. Her ambitions to grow the business resulted in her devoting longer hours and creating additional stress for herself. Soon her life became unmanageable. Troublesome health issues entered the picture. Sadly, the painful and baffling symptoms were given a name, cancer. Being practically a workaholic by that time, Debbie found it difficult to face that she would need to slow down and focus on herself. Several surgeries and chemotherapy made that inevitable. The intense suffering and pain from the surgeries and chemotherapy forced a halt. Deep introspection followed, along with a rearrangement of priorities and a new definition of the meaning of life. Upon receiving her diagnosis, Debbie decided to write a blog as a cathartic and therapeutic exercise. It was also her hope that others would benefit from reading and knowing that they are not alone in facing difficulty and scary experiences. After she completed her treatment, amid positive feedback and encouragement, she made the decision to expand her blog into a book and embark on a speaking tour to share her experiences, thoughts, and feelings, again hoping to help others understand and feel supported, to offer support to other cancer patients and their families, to help others understand the real fear and existential crises faced by those fighting for their lives to share and spread the notion that life holds so much more meaning than working, increasing earnings, getting the new house, car, and all of that. Debbie believes that love and genuine connection with others, a healthy spirit, body, and soul are the real rewards of a life well-lived. Welcome, Debbie. Thanks, Kate. I'm so happy to be with you today. You spent 18 years at the same job. Sounds like it was pretty unfulfilling. What type of job was that? What kept you there so long? And more importantly, how did you decide it was finally time to make a change? Oh, wow. That seems like two or three lifetimes ago. But um, I started working at an acute care hospital in Modesto, California when I was just 18 years old. And at that time, I was so young, I hadn't graduated from high school yet, I didn't have a college degree, so it was kind of a, a job that was directed in my path by my family. They, they saw I was a little bit rudderless and, uh, and sent me to take some classes at the hospital to learn how to read cardiac EKG monitors. So I took that class and I passed it and the hospital hired me and so... I started working night shift in the coronary care units and the intensive care units monitoring, you know, critically ill patients, their heartbeats. And I was only 18 and I was terrified, (laughs) Mm. but um, it was something I knew how to do. I eventually, you know, was transferred into another unit that was less critical, but, but at that time I was monitoring 36 different heart monitors for 36 different patients at the same time. Got on day shift, um, 
and found that I was really good at that. I was one of the best people there at that hospital doing that. I ended up training people. And so I, I was getting some satisfaction out of it. Um, and so for a while, it seemed like the perfect thing for me. But after a while, I, you know, I got married and had my daughter. And I started to feel less and less satisfied in that role, um, struggled a lot, tried to, to go to junior college to kind of, you know, get educated. I thought I would be a teacher at one point, and so it was taking classes to become a teacher, but trying to work full-time and go to school and raise my daughter, et cetera, was really mm-hmm. difficult, and I found that I wasn't able to complete college. And so I was a little bit demoralized by that and just felt like I was stuck, like this is the only thing I know how to do. I don't have an education. I don't have a college degree. I'm just kind of stuck here. Um, and also, as my daughter got a little bit older, you know, she was uh, preschool age, five years old, starting kindergarten, I realized that the where we were living, um, the city that we lived in and the neighborhood that we lived in was not the best place to raise a child. And, and I had been relocated as a teenager from uh, Manhattan Beach, California, to the Central Valley of California and hated it and hated it and hated it and never felt like home. And as my daughter was growing and I saw that I didn't want her to grow up someplace that was that I thought was awful, that I needed to make a change and, and needed to move out of the area. So that was that kind of spurred me on um, the desire so, to provide a better life for my daughter. Yeah. So is it just the one daughter? Yep, I just have the one daughter. Um, so at, at that point in time, and for a couple of years, my, my dad, who was already living up in the Seattle area at that time, he, um, my parents had gotten divorced and he'd remarried and relocated up here. And over the subsequent years of him moving, a bunch of my other family had moved up into this area. And I thought, well, this is, and I'd been visiting every year. And I thought, well, this is, this is the place I want to be. So, um, my dad at that time was working for one of the top career consulting agencies in the world, and he had been prodding me for years, like, why are you, why are you still doing this job? What, what is this holding you back? Why don't you do something different? And I kept saying, Dad, I, only, I, haven't, I don't have a college degree. I can't do anything else. I don't have any other skills. And he said, that's, that's BS. Yes, you do. You just don't know what they are. So mm. finally, I um, said, okay, help me. And he, what he did for me was led me through this process that they offered to their high-end executive clients at his career consulting agency. And at that time, was probably valued at five to ten thousand uh, dollars package of services. Um, this was the early '90s, so it was a pretty intensive process, and it was more than just helping you find a job. It was really deep and actually has changed my life forever in a, in a terrific way, taught me a lot of skills. So part of the process was taking personality profiles, um, making assessments of your, of your existing skill sets, um, other kinds of characteristics about you. It involved uh, making a list of your top 15 all-time greatest achievements of your life starting at age 10. And so, you know, at that point in time, I was feeling like I didn't have any achievements, really. So I had to find sort of mm, alternative, non-traditional achievements in my life that weren't connected to career or, or anything that we think of when someone says, list your top 10 achievements. It was mm-hmm. things like, making Thanksgiving dinner for the first time and having to organize and figure it out and time out all the foods. I mean, it was it was those kind of things that I was able to share. But through that process, putting all that information together helps the client and helped me see that I had a ton of skill sets, a ton of natural abilities, a ton of um, characteristics that were transferable and super useful and super valuable in the workplace. Things I didn't realize, even though I had been doing this job, you know, the same job for 18 years and excelled at it and was training others, I still didn't see myself as smart or 
capable or accomplished in any way. And so I was really holding myself back. And this process that I did with with my dad in the career consulting process that they use, I called it the Haldane way because the name of the organization was Haldane, mm-hmm. um, really changed the way that I saw myself and gave me the confidence and kind of a, a platform off of which to jump into seeking another kind of career, another kind of, of job. Yeah, that that's very interesting because that a lot of that I take my clients through in my uh, Profiting from Your Passions and Outside the Job Box career consulting because, yes, you're absolutely right. People often think of only career achievements when or or career skills, but everybody has some special skill that they are so, so good at that it's so easy for them that they just don't think about it. But that's usually something that they could do for other people that they could get paid for. And it's it's always that sort of aha moment, right? Sort of like you had like, hey, I really do have something to offer here. Yeah, yeah. And so at that point in time, so I, I discovered, you know, my value and the other part of the service that the that my dad shared with me was sort of going around um, all the standard, typical, regular, usual ways people get jobs. You know, looking in the paper. At that time, <laughs> we still read newspapers right. and all the jobs were listed in the newspaper. So, you know, what what he taught me and what I learned was that, you know, if you look in the paper and let's say, you know, out of the hundreds of jobs listed there, there's 10 that you think that, you know, you go, oh, I'm, I, I could do that. And you send your resume in or your application or whatever, you're, you're just one of possibly hundreds of others applying for that, that same position. And so the odds are kind of against you unless you're like a superstar of some kind. But at that time, I was just, I wasn't a superstar. I was just starting this new sort of career path of mine, which was sort of promotions and marketing and, and communications <clears throat> oriented, which I still do today, actually. Um, so what I learned was this method of getting to the decision maker at the company, getting into the office of the CEO or the you know executive director or the manager or whatever without having to do the whole HR routine that everybody thinks they need to do. And um, that was super enlightening as well because I was like, oh, you know, at that time I'd just been doing that same old job forever and anybody that was at a C-level, you know, in any company organization was like, oh, my God, these are special humans. You know, they are (laughs) there to be feared and revered and and that kind of thing. And um, they're not. They're just people, right? So what what I learned was to do this thing that's just called um, informational interviews or informational meetings. I'm sure you're familiar with this as well, but I wasn't. I'm and still lots of people aren't. So in the context of me wanting to relocate from where we were living to where I wanted to live, I needed to start getting these meetings with people who were leaders in King and Snohomish County, which is the area that I knew that I wanted to live in, but I but I didn't know where to start. And so the process is you, you get this meeting with somebody and, and you are not looking for a job. I'm just here. I'm just doing research. I want to change mm-hmm. my career role or I am planning on relocating and I'm looking for people to just ask questions for and get advice from. And so... Right you take the pressure off that person you're meeting with that, that they have to find a job for you or that you're asking them for something and they're, they love to help. They're flattered when you ask for help. So the way, this is kind of a funny story, the way that I got the first meeting, because I didn't know anybody up here. I mean, my dad was living here, but he was so removed from exa- what it was that I wanted to do in, in Snohomish County that um, I was talking to my aunt and at that time, she was living on her sailboat in the Everett Marina and nice. just happened in the slip next to her boat um, was the boat that belonged to um, a city council person, uh, an Everett city of Everett city council person. And he was the president of the council at that time. And so she said to me, hey, do you think 
that just by me knowing him and having our boats together in a slip is enough for you to get to get a toe in the door to meet with him? And I said, I don't know, but I'll give it a try. So mm-hmm. I wrote a I wrote a letter to Dale Pope, that was his name, and said, Hi, you don't know me. I was just talking with my aunt. Her boat's name is whatever. I couldn't remember what it is, but you know, it's in the slip next to yours in the Everett Marina. We were just talking about my upcoming move and and I was asking her about what opportunities and sharing with her my, my challenges of how do I get, you know, how do I meet people? How do I figure out even a year in advance, you know, where I want to land when I get there? And she suggested that I meet with you, that you might be able to answer some of my questions. And I'm not asking for a job. I'm just wanting to talk to you and maybe get some ideas from you where else to look for information about where my skills and abilities and interests might best fit and serve the community. So I wrote that letter and at the end said, I will call you in one week to arrange a mutually beneficial time for a meeting. So Mm -hmm. I did that. So I called his office. His secretary answered. I said, I'm Debbie. I'm calling to follow up on this letter I sent. And she said, oh, yes, I have your letter right here. And he has asked me to give you a call to set up this meeting. What? Oh, my God. I was I was over the moon. I couldn't believe it. It was so it cool. It worked. It worked. Oh, my God. I didn't know this guy. And he just barely knows my aunt. But for some reason, that tickled him. So he wanted to meet with me. So I planned on a 20-minute meeting. I told him it would be a 20-minute meeting. And so I actually had to fly up from California to do this meeting. And uh, it was awesome. He spent 90 minutes with me. And we talked and we laughed and he shared with me what was happening in the community, um, was thrilled with my ideas and my, and my skills and me personally. And so at the end of the, of the meeting, what I learned from my dad and what I did was ask him, so, hey, thank you so much for meeting with me. Can you think of anybody else that I should meet with to ask these same kind of questions. And I'm not asking for a job. I'm just trying to figure out where I, where I need to land. Is there somebody you can recommend that you would feel comfortable with me using your name as a reference? And mm-hmm. he said, sure. And he gave me a list of 20 names. Wow, 20. <laughs> yes. It was, it, was, it was more than I had, could even have hoped would happen so I took that list and I went home and I started writing letters because that's what we did back then. <laughs> there was no email yet or barely email. And I did the same thing over and over and over again. And I was flying from California to Washington about every six to eight weeks doing these informational interviews. So the, the concept is that by talking with all these people who are decision makers in their organization. So I was talking with the executive director of the United Way and the YMCA and different things. I was thinking I wanted to, you know, be in community building or nonprofit field um, to help, you know, um, improve quality of life in the community in which I was going to live. That was my goal. And uh, so eventually with all these meetings, the concept is that you are going to be the solution to somebody's problem that they have, and they're going to offer you a job on the spot without having to go through HR, without having to submit an application, et cetera. They're going to see you and meet you and say, wow, you are the person that we need to solve this problem that we have in our organization. And eventually that did happen for me. Mm. (laughs) Um, I met with the executive director of the Little Red Schoolhouse, in Linwood, Washington, at that time, they were doing um, early childhood education and therapy for kids, little tiny kids ages zero to three with developmental delays and disabilities. And they, um, she, we talked, and I told her what I was all about, and she said, oh, my gosh, we need somebody like you in our organization. But I don't think we can afford you. <laughs> Ah. And I said, hmm, because I, at that point in time, I didn't even really know what it was I should ask, you know, what, what is, what is an appropriate compensation? Because I hadn't done anything else than what I had been doing in California, right? So, and she said, let me think about that. And, and I said, well, whatever happens, I'm going to be in this community 
in 2003, that's our plan is to move here, and I bet we'll run into each other and maybe work on a project together. So I'm sure I'll see you again. And say, I'm doing all these meetings. The next time I come up for the next my next round of meetings, could I call you and we could just have lunch together? And she said, sure. So go home, do-do-do-do-do. I don't remember by that time how many times I'd flown up already to do these meetings. But when I called her prior to my next trip, and said, hey, remember we talked and we were going to have lunch? And she said, yes, and in fact, I have a proposition for you. So bam, we had lunch. She offered me a part-time position, which was which was enough because I was able to telecommute from my job that I was doing in, in Modesto at that time. And oh, it was nice. the first job that I got up here and was able to move my family, which was awesome. And so that whole process of just talking to people and not being afraid of the sea level people <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of changed my life and and gave me control and a sense of power over what was happening to me that you know you that I wasn't and we all aren't at the whim of someone else uh to 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 make your life what you want it to be I was seeing that I could actually carve my own path and that was the beginning of of that realization for me that is awesome that is great advice for people yeah don't be afraid of them and go out and find out the information that you need and meet with people and something will come out of it even if it's just that you make some really good contacts or friends along the way exactly exactly so you eventually formed your own consulting firm and it sounds like you were pretty successful maybe a little too successful you say that your life became unmanageable what was that like for you? Well, so um, after the Little Red Schoolhouse, I had I had a couple other jobs in the area. That wasn't really the best fit, turned out. Um, and then a couple others after that were not the best fit. And I had learned my lesson in my other job of sticking somewhere for, for so long and not being happy. And I, since I understood how to, to move forward now, I... I didn't stay long in places that that weren't a good fit. And um, what happened next was I was contacted by someone I had met networking years ago for something completely different, and they were looking for – she was on the board of directors for the historic downtown Snohomish Association and said, we've been looking for someone for nine months. We haven't been able to find anybody. I don't even know if this is what you do, but would you look at the job description, et cetera, and see if this is something that you're interested in. So I started working for them as an independent contractor, and shortly, and it was great, And but it was part-time hours. And a few months after that, the Snohomish Festival of Pumpkins Board of Directors, um, which is a kind of an association. The Snohomish of Festival seven, of Pumpkins? Yeah, so the Snohomish Festival of Pumpkins is an association awesome. of seven um, pumpkin farmers in the Snohomish area that kind of threw all their hats in a ring and said, hey, how do we promote Snohomish as the place to go to get pumpkins, like in the whole Western Washington? This is where you should come. We're all here. There's six of us, plenty to choose from. And so they started this association years before they connected with me, but they had lost their program manager or their event manager and they were looking for someone else, and someone in Snohomish that I had been working with, and I still to this day don't know who it is, referred me to them. And I'd only been working in Snohomish for a few months, and already someone was referring me to say, this person's awesome. Awesome. You You must be very, very good at what you do. I guess so. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Um, So then I was like, okay, so now I've got these two clients, right? Well, what's to say I couldn't get other clients like this, you know, and do, um, so what they were contracting me to do was develop their advertising, um, plan and produce some events for them, do some fundraising work, both of those organizations. And I was thinking, well, I can do that for other organizations too. I have these graphic design skills. I know how to write marketing copy. I can do Facebook. I can do websites, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, I'm going to make this big, you know. And uh, so my, I set my goal to just keep building my business and building my business. Well, even when I, even though I hired an assistant to help me with some of the more administrative secretarial type tasks, I was still 
I got to a point where I was working 12 hours a day, almost every day. And I felt at that time that it was going to be worth it because in the end, I was going to have this great business. I was going to be making more money. I was going to be successful. I was going to have a lot of influence in my community, et cetera. But um, at the end of a couple of years of trying to you know, grow my business, I looked at how much money, extra money I was making and how when I looked at has the quality of my life changed at all, and mm. it had changed, but not for the better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was super stressed out, and, and but that was okay with me. Like, I started to live to work, and um, my whole identity and self-worth became tied to my work achievements and how much I could do in the community and how perfectly I could do all of the things that needed to be done. And Mm -hmm. that became, it consumed me. Um, Recently, I've just recently sort of purged my office, my home office. And um, when I started doing that, I came, I hadn't looked at it for a couple of years because of my my illness, but when I came in just a a month ago to purge out my office, I came inside and I looked and I saw how full it was of file cabinets and and shelving units and piles of papers and all the supplies for the events I was doing, and there was no room for me. It was like literally I was trapping myself in all this stuff around my work and I didn't realize it so much when it was happening. Um, I was just crazy. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't manage my life. Like my, my whole life was about work and my relationships suffered relationships with my family and, and my health, my mental health and my physical health. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. You were having some health issues. Were you worried or did you just write it off as a result of the stress of running a super busy consulting company? Well, I kind of felt that. This was a few years ago when I started to get symptoms. And they were, I was just having these wretched periods. Just incomprehensible amounts of bloating and blood and pain, and um, which had sort of increased over a period of time, and then they just got to be where I was. I was home for a week. I couldn't work for a week because it was that that bad. But I would get through. I was like, oh, it's perimenopause. I'm just going through menopause. Everybody experiences this. I'm no not special. I just have to endure this until I go through menopause, and then I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. So I'd have these weeks of um of just agony and inability to work or do anything but for some reason I wasn't paying attention like I was just like I just got to get through this so I can get back to work so I can so I can you know fulfill my obligations to my clients etc and that was my primary concern like this is this is such an inconvenience for my work I don't know I was yeah. nuts. I was nuts and so then um Finally, I said, okay, I got to go. I got to go in to see a doctor um, and see what's happening with me. And maybe they'll just give me, you know, some meds or some kind of treatments that will just lessen the pain or, or, you know, sort of lessen these symptoms that I'm having that everyone has, right? (laughs) Well, so (laughs) my, uh, my doctor you know, did a did a pelvic exam, and she said, I think there's something there. We need to do an ultrasound. And so the ultrasound um, revealed that I had a very large cyst on, on my left ovary. And I was like, wow, what? And, of course, they wanted to do surgery to remove it. And I said, nah, nope, I don't have time for that. What else can we do? Yeah. yeah, I don't have time for this. Who has time for this? No, what else can we do that's not surgery? Well, we can give you hormone therapy because sometimes hormones will shrink an ovarian cyst. And that sounded reasonable to me because 10 years before I had had an ovarian cyst and we treated it with hormones and it kind of shrank. So I said, okay, Mm -hmm. yeah, let's do that. I had a DNC 
and they put an IUD in, one of the kinds that, you know, exudes uh, hormones of some kind. And so my my terrible period symptoms went away, and we thought probably this hormones would help shrink the ovary. And so you need to come in for a follow-up ultrasound in three months so we can check on the size of this ovary. Well, so I neglected to go in for the follow-up when I was supposed to because I was so busy working. So I didn't actually Uh-oh. get... Yeah, so I didn't actually get to the second ultrasound until after the holiday season because that's a really busy time for me. And um, and I went in to get have it because I was having some pressure and pain again. I was like, what's going on? Uh-oh, that's right. I was supposed to go get this ultrasound. And so what we discovered was that the, the cyst, instead of shrinking, had doubled in size, really scary, um, I needed to have surgery for sure, and a complete hysterectomy is what was recommended um, given my prior health history and the fact that, well, if we just remove this ovary, doesn't mean you wouldn't get, you know, a cyst on the other ovary, so let's just do it all now. We'll take care of your menopause, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking, okay, we'll do that. So um, this is where it gets kind of heinous. We, um, I had, I had a hysterectomy, and while they had me on the table, the surgeon, you know, saw the cyst. It was a 13 centimeter cyst, which is about the size of a grapefruit. And mm, wow, that's they, big. It's big, and so they said, while we're in here, we're going to send your ovary to the to the pathology to see what's in there, to see if there's anything that we need to worry about. So they did that, and they saw the initial test that they do in the pathology lab right there instantly showed there was some questionable activity, some questionable cells, some questionable growth in, in inside the, the ovary. And so then they said, okay, they told me before the surgery, if we find something like that, we're going to do this, this tissue sampling all inside of your, your abdomen to make sure that that there aren't any other areas of potential cancer growth or tumor growth in your abdomen. So they took little samples of different lymph nodes and other parts of inside my my abdomen after the surgery. And then typically after that kind of major abdominal surgery, they irrigate out your abdominal cavity with saline, and then they collect all that fluid and spin it down in the lab and look for whatever's in there. So they mm-hmm. did that, and they... The results I got 12 days after the surgery were that, yes, this thing in your ovary was a cancerous tumor. No, none of the other tissue samples that we took show any active tumor growth. But we did find quite a few random floating cancer cells in this fluid that we took out of your abdomen. Hmm. Um, And the type of cancer cells that they were, which is called clear cell carcinoma, is such a rare and aggressive form of cancer that they said, we recommend that you have chemotherapy, even though you don't have any active tumor growth, because these guys are super aggressive and they very often will, you know, form their little club and get together and start growing new tumors if we don't if we don't knock them out right away. Hmm. Well, that must have not been a very pleasant experience for you. How, how, how did you feel in that moment when you received that diagnosis, you know, cancer or something nobody wants to hear? And, and then, of course, you didn't even think you had time for the surgery, much less the treatment, which... I don't know, you tell me, was it long and involved? It sounds like, I mean, I've known people who've gone through chemo and some is short and relatively painless and others is long and drawn out and has, you know, severe side effects. What was that like for you? Yeah, so there's a two parts to, to your question. I'm going to answer, give you two two parts of, you know, two answers to it. Um, when I actually... At the doctor's office, when he gave us that news 
about the clear cell carcinoma, I was actually quite calm because I kind of already knew in my head and in my heart that Mm. I had cancer. And I had already been thinking about it. And um, so when I actually, it was confirmed for me, I, I felt kind of calm in that moment but then had to do a ton of soul-searching and thinking for weeks after that. I wasn't sure about having chemotherapy. What they had recommended to me is what they call a dose-dense program, which is having very high doses of chemotherapy every week, which is not normal. Most people get their chemo, and then they have two to three weeks in between so that their body Mm -hmm. can recover and they can get stronger and be ready for the next dose. But for me and for this particular type of cancer, they said, if we give you time to rest, we also give the cancer time to regroup. And so this is what we recommend. And you're fairly young and healthy. You know, we think you can, your body can handle it. And so that's what we, that's what we did. And it was really rough. It was, there was a lot of the physical symptoms that we all know about, the nausea and the fatigue and the pain. Um, But for me, in addition, and I came to discover it's the same for others, there was also a lot of emotional and spiritual agony around the process. And for me, being so, my my self-esteem and my self-image being so tied to my work and my extrovertedness in the world, I wasn't able to manifest any of those things that I was so accustomed to doing and being in the world like being and being needing to be perfect at all of it Mm -hmm. I had to let go of that idea of who I was because I couldn't do all that stuff before I was a person who was loath to ask for help even if I was struggling, even if I was stressed because no, no, I you know, I can do it way better than everyone else and I'm superwoman and you know, I'm independent, da 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 and so those were things I just wasn't <laughs> I had to let go of and I had to learn how to, to be a different way in the world. I needed I had to learn how to ask for and receive care and assistance, and that was quite a transformation for me. And I, I had a lot of, a lot of angst and a lot of emotional pain around, around this identity crisis. Um, and for me, that was all happening at the same time that my body was physically fighting and and feeling in agony and. Um, so that was really hard. Something, yeah. some really wonderful things also came out of that time. And some of those wonderful things that came out was that I learned, I did learn how to receive love. I was able to deepen my relationships with my loved ones in my life. I had many, many, many people sort of come out of the woodwork to offer their support and assistance in the form of giving me rides to my chemotherapy treatments to in the form of bringing me bringing me and my family you know prepared meals so that we could you know so that my family could focus on taking care of me and not worrying about you know cooking and making sure that we were all eating healthy um people I got so many cards and so many um, phone calls and texts and, and support from people in the Snohomish community that sort of wrapped themselves around me that I that I didn't really realize were there and that I didn't mm-hmm. realize that there were so many people that cared about me and that there were people out there that I had neglected 
that had made overtures to me, um, friendship overtures to me over the years that I sort of didn't take seriously because I had this lack of self-esteem. And um, it was a revelation to me that that here are all these people and I, wow, they value me, they care about me. And it, and it was this sort of outpouring of love and support that really buoyed me up and helped me fight and helped me, gave me the strength that I needed to, to face my fears, to face this identity crisis that I had and help transform me into understanding better that my, that I was going down the wrong track, that I was, that I was worshiping a false god of achievement and money and influence and those kind of things. And they're really not that important, you know, once you are facing, you know, death. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of a, it's a, definitely a, a, a hard way to learn those kind of life lessons. But Indeed. I you started writing a blog with a great name, by the way, not going to sugarcoat it, mostly for yourself, but also, as, you, as you've said, hopefully an inspiration to others who might be going through the same thing. What made you decide to do that? I'm not sure exactly. It, it seems like I was, at the time I decided to do it, I was I was still caught up in this this idea that, you know, I needed to be of service, you know, like that I still needed to be extroverting myself out into the world, that it, that if I completely withdrew from everything, that somehow I wouldn't be serving my true character and my, my purpose in life. <laughs> mm. So, but at the same time, I thought, because I thought, well, if I do this, I might be able to help people because no one talks about this. When I started telling people um, that I had cancer, which it was really hard for me to do that, I kind of kept secret the other health. When I first started having the health issues, I kept a secret from everyone except for my very close family because even though I had surgery the year before I found out I had cancer and I was down for a while, I didn't want any of my clients to think I couldn't fulfill you know, my obligations to them. So I kept a secret. I I went back to work as soon as I could, which probably was to my detriment, et cetera. Um, but then when I when I got the diagnosis and I said, you know what, I'm going to do the opposite this time. I'm just going to put it all out there and it's going to help me to get out what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing, but it also might help other people who are going through cancer or maybe just other difficult circumstances and keeping all of that, their agony and their fears and their questions inside of themselves because they're afraid that other people won't understand what they're going through. You know, if I could share what I was going through and some of the really dark, mucky, dirty things that I was thinking and feeling and experiencing, uh, maybe I could help those people. So that's what I did. And now you're going to turn it into a book. Same name as the blog? I think so. Um, when I started to clear out my office, I have this giant four by five whiteboard in there. I wiped it all down and I started making notes of all the things I, I wanted to do because that's how I am. I can't help it. <laughs> I realized I have probably five books in me. So one of them will be not going to sugarcoat it. And that's the one that'll be based on my blog. Um, I got so much positive feedback from not just cancer patients who started following my blog and friends and family, which really were the first people that started following it. And it was kind of also a way for me to keep everybody up to date on my progress without having to talk to every single person. <laughs> so it was kind mm -hmm. of a, a cool tool in that way. But then I found that people who I didn't know also then started to follow my blog and follow the Facebook and, um, I got a ton of positive feedback and encouragement from folks who said, you know, this 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 smells like a book deal in the making and that your writing is so inspirational and and there's people who who contacted me who said, 
you know, my aunt had cancer, but she was so, she was a woman of so few words. We never knew what was going on with her. And your Mm. blog has let us, given us a peek, a window into what she might have been feeling and experiencing. And so that was really beneficial to, you know, the family members and caregivers of folks who are experiencing serious illness. Um, So when I decided to write the book, I felt like mm, maybe it's a little too me, me, me me-ish to write a book just about me. So still there's some of that weird self-esteem stuff going on there, low self-esteem stuff from way (laughs) back when. So I thought, okay, so what I'll do is, uh, here's what I'll do. I will interview other women that I admire who have gone through some terrifying or very challenging circumstances and came out of it. And so I'll interview them and I'll inter- and I'll use those stories in my book as well. So that's the process that I'm in right now is I have a list of, of people that, uh, that I'm interviewing um, for the book. So it'll be my story, but also other people's stories. And what I'm discovering as I, as I'm talking to people is that they're, stories are, there's a lot of similarities between the way the different people are sort of um, dealing with their challenges. And and I guess that, that sort of would have, would have been an obvious thing that I should have thought of before I started interviewing people, but I guess I really didn't think of it. And so it's it's actually helping me. <laughs> the process of talking to other people is actually helping me process and deal with my own feelings and my own situation as well. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting process I'm going through. Yeah. And I'm sure that'll be very helpful to other people because number one, we need to know we're not alone, right? And see others experience so that we can feel uh, as if it's, it's, you know, it's doable. It is doable. It is doable. So we're almost out of time. I have to ask you, what is one book or resource that changed your life besides your own that you would recommend to people? Gosh, Kate, I've read so many books in my life. I'm not sure that I can point to a single one that's changed me or that's influenced me. I really enjoy, have enjoyed the writings of John Maxwell. You're probably familiar with him. He's a leadership Mm -hmm. coach. Um, And right now I'm reading um, Brene Brown, um, Rising Strong, I think is her latest book that came out. Um, She's a shame researcher and her Rising Strong book is about, you know, coming out of a difficult situation and how to bounce back from that. It's about resiliency. And that's mm-hmm. what I really would like my not going to sugarcoat it book to be about resiliency and, and mm-hmm. people, you know, understand what that means and what that looks like and that it's achievable, you know, for, for anyone. And I think that's what Brene does in her book, Rising Strong. What would you say to someone who is at a crossroads in their life, similar to doing some soul searching, maybe because of a health crisis or some other crisis, rethinking how they're defining success for themselves? Sorry, there was a little disturbance in the audio there. I didn't hear your question. Oh, I'm sorry. What would you say to someone who's at a crossroads in their life, either because of a health crisis or you know, and uh, just re- just questioning where they are and where they're going. They're rethinking how they're defining success for themselves. Mm-hmm. What one of the things that I um, one of the practices that I adopted when I when I got my diagnosis was daily meditation, and mm-hmm. that has really helped me. And also, this is going to sound really funny, but therapy. Like I have started, I started seeing a therapist and I've been meditating and I think, you know, the meditation takes you in to your, your actual real core voice, allows you to to actually listen to what your own heart is telling you. And then the therapy is, is 
you know, the the external, someone outside of you helping to guide you through the questions that will lead you to the answers that you're looking for, that maybe you don't know what those questions are yet. And, and a therapist can help you ask those questions. Excellent. And if people want to learn more about you and maybe read your blog, where can they find that? That would be notgunnasugarcoat.com. And I'm also on Facebook, and that's facebook.com slash notgunnasugarcoat. Excellent. Debbie Carlson Gould, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, Kate. It, it, was, it was my great pleasure as well. How amazing is she, Debbie Carlson Gould? When you're faced with a life-changing event, whether it's a health crisis or something else, it can be an opportunity to really enhance and up-level your experience. My intention with all of the interviews in this podcast is that whatever challenge you're facing, you're inspired by what you hear and realize that you are not alone. And if they can do it, you can too. If you have something to say about this or any of my other shows, please leave a comment on the show page or on my Facebook page, First Class Life Solutions. You can find links to the recommended resources and previous podcasts on my website, firstclasslifesolutions.com. If you'd like to be a guest on my show, please click on the link on the show page and fill out the survey so we can see if it's a good fit. And lastly, please follow the show and tell your friends. Next week, it will be just me, and I'll be talking about fear. What's holding you back, and what can you do to get past it? Until then, here's to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to Change, Redefining Success. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at EWNpodcastnetwork.com.